the faithful worship of God alone. That's our topic tonight, to worship God alone. Now, we do not live in a pagan, pagan, pagan culture. We live in a semi-pagan culture, getting more pagan by the day, but it is not totally pagan. Do not have people out there sacrificing chickens, typically, to big, huge statues or anything like that. So I want you to ask yourself today, tonight, and think about what do I love? What do I love, and do I love it in a proper light? What do I love? And do I love it in a proper light? Because we worship what we love. Okay? We worship what we love. Turn with me to Revelation 2, chapter 12. Revelation 2, chapter 12. We're going to go through 12 through 17. If you have a Bible or if you want to grab a pew Bible, that would be good because I'm going to be going over content and referencing the back to the verse, and it would just be good to have it in front of you even after I go off of the slide. So that's Revelation 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 12 is where we'll start tonight. Um, now, we have a simple outline for Revelation. Jesus said to John, write what was seen, write what is, and write what will be. Jesus has been seeing the glorified Christ, what will be, what's what we're doing now, the seven churches, uh, the church of God, and what will be, the things that will take place after this. That's the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, and the final coming of God. So that is a general outline of Revelation. It's Jesus's outline <laughs> given to John of Revelation, and it tracks with it quite, quite well. Revelation 2, 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So whose words are they, church? They are Jesus' words, and he has a sharp two-edged sword. I know uh, we will talk about that sword here in a bit. So it's the church in Pergamum. If you are looking at that map, Pergamum is the very top point on that map. I don't know if you can read that from the down there. If you have really good eyes, you could, perhaps. But um, it's there in modern-day Turkey, Pergamum. Uh, um, Pergamum uh, is modern-day town that uh, Pergamum is close to. All right, so what information, my button's stuck, what information do we need to know? Well, the legend of Pokemon's founding places Zeus, Athena, Hercules in the city's pedigree. So pretty much pagan all the way through. The myth claims that as a boy, the city's founder, Telephus, was placed into a chest with his mother and floated across the open sea to the mouth of the Caicos River. 
Well, Hercules and Athena provided him with sustenance. The city had numerous temples dedicated to Greek deities. Athena, Zeus, Dionysus. I know it. Just give me a second. Oh, I'm going to have a... Aska, please. Oh, Aska, please. Uh, Hera, Demento, uh, I'm not good with names, Uh, Posoni, as well as Egyptian deities, Seraphis, Isis, and uh, Alpacrates, okay? And uh, it's interesting because these have a big uh, influence. Uh, The one I couldn't say fourth, uh, Ascaplis, I'm totally butchering that, Ascaplis. Oh, well, I don't know. I had it earlier. I practiced it. Now I can't say it. But this is the da- god of healing. It's well, you know how all symbols for healing has a snake wrapped around the stake? That's where that comes from, that god, just to give you some uh, interesting context there. Christians at Pergamum experienced great pressure due to the city's heavily focus on traditional Greco-Roman religious life. So not only did they worship all those gods, and that picture you see up there, that's the altar to Zeus, okay? Uh, and then to the, uh, to the right, uh, there you see uh, a, C- uh, a Caesar. Uh, I think that's Caesar Augustus. So both the Greek gods and the Roman emperors, they worshiped. So, The next phrase is Jesus' words spoken. It's the sharp two-edged sword, right? That sharp two-edged sword. It's the word of God. Isaiah 49, 2, talking about the servant of God, the the Messiah, uh, Yahweh, the Lord, will put the sword of God, a double-edged sword, in the servant's mouth. Isaiah 49, 2. And then Ephesians 6, 17, we know that the we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then uh, Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword, right? Dividing both soul and spirit, bone and mirror. So it's interesting because there are two words for sword in the Greek describing two different kinds of swords. All right, we have two different kinds. You can see the one, that big one is a two-handed sword. It's called a romphian, a broad sword. The Septuagint has the angel of the Lord carrying this type of sword. Every time it talks about the angel of the Lord having a sword, it's this two-handed sword. The same sword that's coming out of Jesus' mouth in Revelation. And then every other time, the, the other sword in Greek is machira. It's a Roman short sword. In Revelation, it's used by those who are waging war. And it was the weapon of choice of the Roman centurion. Okay? They would use a machira. And that's a short sword. It's usually about 16 inches long. And it could be double-edged. But it is a sh- smaller sword, and it's a one-handed sword that you wield with a shield. 
So in Revelations 2, Revelation 2.13, it says, uh, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. You hold fast my name and do not deny my faith. Even in the day of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Where Satan dwells. So what is this idea of Satan's throne? Well, there are three, I think, good options. Those actually could be more than, more than three, but I am limited on time. So I, bet I picked the, the best three um, options. So what is it? The fourth one is the altar of Zeus, who poses as the Most High. He is the top dude in the Greek pantheon. He's the god of the gods. And so uh, he is posing, uh, trying to assault uh, God's authority. So uh, in Christian uh, thinking, he could be a satanic figure. And this altar that you're looking at, which records Zeus's battles against the giants and some uh, battles that happened in that city, uh, from a distance, this thing uh, is huge. It's the first thing you see when you come into the city. It's up on a thousand-foot hill, and it looks like a throne, like a huge throne that you would, would sit at. Um, we're taking at it from an angle. If you look straight on, you can see how it's just like this huge throne that this big deity, Zeus, would be able to sit on. The great, altar of, the great altar to honor Zeus was built under Epimes and Atlas, so uh, the, both of those are the seconds. It would have been the most visible monument to people approaching the city across the valley. The altar is preserved in remarkably good condition and displayed in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. So I'll probably never get to see it because I'm not going to make a trip to Germany anytime soon. Its decorations depict scenes from a battle between the Olympian gods and the giants, as well as scenes from the life of Telpheus, the city's legendary founder. Okay, so that's the first one. It's the altar of Zeus that looks like a throne that sits on the top of the hill uh, in, in the uh, Acropolis there. Or the second one is that it's the Roman imperial cult. The Roman imperial cult. This, this is a cult that demanded you declare Caesar as Lord, worship him as Lord, uh, declare him as your Savior. Now, no Christian could do that to anybody but who? Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus is Lord. He is our Savior, and we cannot worship him. So, which demands imperial worship? Revelation presents Rome, okay? Revelation presents Rome reborn in some sense. And Satan giving Rome, i.e. the beast, his throne. Okay, so this could be the other thing. Because of uh, Pergamon is really emphasizing uh, uh, a Roman imperial cult, uh, imperial worship. Perhaps this is what he means. When he says that you are where Satan dwells, 
you all the, the throne of Satan is there. And uh, if we look at Revelation 13 and trace throne throughout, most of the time throne in Revelation is referring to God's throne and God's judging from his throne uh, in heaven. Um, but this one, Revelation 13, 2, refers to the throne of the dragon. And we know from Revelation um, 12 that the dragon is Satan. Okay? We know that the dragon is Satan. And so this verse in Revelation 13, 2 says, And the beast I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and it's and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So this throne is given, the throne of Satan is given to the Roman imperial cult, this figure of Rome reborn. So that is our second option for the throne of Satan. The imperial cult directly challenged Christians which forbids worship of any human other than Jesus as Lord and Savior, both used as titles of the emperors. Refusal to pay, refusal to pay public homage to Caesar as a deity would have been considered not only irreligious, but also treason, treasonous, often resulting in martyrdom or execution. They died for their faith if they would not Declare Jesus as Lord. <laughs> then uh, the third option is Jesus is referring to both of these forces and all of the gods in a sense uh, in, uh, in Eph uh, Pergamum because they are aligned with Satan and against God's people, against his people. So the third option is, yeah, it's, it's that. Yeah, it's that too. Yeah, he wasn't being super, super specific to saying it was a throne where Satan dwells. Now, the visual impact of Zeus's altar there that looks like a throne is a pretty strong argument. But I also see a lot more textual evidence uh, for the Roman imperial cult uh, having a tie to a throne and that being a manifestation of Satan's throne. So you get a pick. I, I think it's both. I think that that's a good answer. Um, you could even talk about the, the God that I can't pronounce his name tonight because I just messed that up. But his, his symbol is a snake, right, wrapped around his stick, right? Uh, ask, I, I almost had it. I had it, but it's not coming out of my tongue. So, uh, all right, moving on. Jesus' commendation. So they are in a bad place. They are in the thick of it. Uh, somebody, uh, Anna Pius, had already died, and he probably represented more than just one guy dying for his faith, okay? And they held fast and did not deny Jesus' faith. My faith, he says, they did not deny the faith, even unto death. And I know that a lot of us, when we see something like this, we're like, I don't think I could do that. I, I just don't think so. I think I would cave, right? Who, who here thinks that? I think that sometimes, right? I think I would just say, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll pass. 
right? So how can I hold fast? If they held fast, how can I hold fast? And, and, and then maybe we let that, that thought pattern turn to fear because that's a lie from the enemy that, that we won't hold fast because it's not about us. It's not about us, church. It's about him. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Oh, I got it. (laughs) Who did that in the Bible? Starts with a P. I will never, he says, deny you. Peter, Paul, Peter mainly, yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Peter, I won't deny you. And Jesus says, before the cock crow, cock, the rooster crows three times, right, you will deny me. Did it happen? It did. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. We all are tempted, okay? God is absent. Is that what it says? No, it says God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. That you may be able to endure it or be faithful in it. God is faithful. He is the one that will make you stand. We don't stand on our own. So what do we say? I don't know. What we, right? If I will stand. But I know God's grace is sufficient. I know God will meet me in that moment. You see? And I am going to choose to trust God for that moment. I'm going to choose to trust God for my tomorrow, right? And in choosing to trust God for my tomorrow, whether or not I would stand when persecution comes, the big what if, right? And then I'm also going to stop and trust him for my now. Right? Today has enough trouble of its own. So let's not live in tomorrow. Let's live in today. Let's not live in the past. Let's live in today. Revelation 2.14 says, But I have a few things, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Balaam is that Old Testament uh, prophet that's not even a Jew, okay? That's a whole new interesting story that I could do a whole talk on, but I don't have time. Uh, He's the guy, for you kids, that rides the talking donkey. Remember that? The The story about the talking donkey who saves Balaam's life, okay? Uh, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. 
So Jesus' rebuke is they practice the teaching of Balaam, which is to eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexua- uh, sexual immorality. Okay? And, and this is all wrapped up in the Greek gods and in the Roman cult. And if you don't participate with those, it's not like optional. If you want to prosper in the city, then you have to make the sacrifices to the gods, and you have to say Caesar is Lord, and, and you have to do these different things. Otherwise, people will not do business with you. They will not buy and sell from you. They, 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 uh, they may take your home away from you, you see, because you're not playing their game. You're actually playing against it. Because they think that everybody has to participate to appease the gods. They practice the teaching of Balaam. The teaching of Balaam comes from Numbers 25 and and Numbers 31, Numbers 25, 1 through 3 says, Why Israel lived in uh, Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to sacrifice to their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So they ate with their feet. So Israel uh, yoked himself to Baal and Pe- of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Numbers 31.16 says, Behold, these on Balaam's advice, talking about women in the previous verse, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the instance of Peor, so that the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. Balaam said, Hey, we can't touch them. I can't curse them, because remember he was supposed to curse the Israelites, and all he did was bless them. But he said, if you entice them to worship your gods, then God will be jealous, and he will discipline them. That was Balaam's advice. And here, in this church, there are people, in the church of Pergamum, there are people following that teaching of Balaam. They are choosing to eat meat at the feasts, sacrifice to Zeus, to to the different gods of the city. They're choosing to say Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the Savior. So why do they practice the teachings of Balaam? So they can participate in Pergamum's activity as a community their feasts, and their sexual rights so that they can be comfortable, so that they can be accepted into the community. No, I know, we do not have feasts to gods (laughs) and not too many sexual rights, thank the Lord. But I, but I ask you this, well, what makes you comfortable? And would you 
choose that comfortability over loving God. Over obeying God. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Remember, we worship what we love. Flee from idolatry. 15, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing is what we bless. It is not a participation. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The, ble- the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This is a feast, communion. I know, I know, we eat a little wafer and we drink a little juice. But it represents a feast. A feast that they had at the early church. And it is a partaking in what Christ has done, the work of the cross, Yahweh embodied. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We all partake of who? Jesus. Consider the people of Israel. Who of Israel? Are not those who eat sacrifices participants in the altar? Meaning, when you are in Israel and you sacrifice the lamb to to God, and you offered up a burnt offering. The whole lamb was not burnt. You took a portion of that lamb, and you sat down in the presence of God, and you ate it with God, in communion with God. What do I imply then, Paul says? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be in participation with demons, Paul says. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? When we skip down to 1 Corinthians 10.31, which is the wrap-up verse for this whole section, it says, whatever we do, whatever we eat, whatever we drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of of God. We are called to worship God alone. The faithful worship God alone. How are we tempted to fit in with our culture in ways that do not glorify God, that do not worship Him? You know what a big way is, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody particular, but cohabitation. Is a big way that all church tri- churches try to fit in with our culture. I don't know how many Christians I know that think it's just fine to cohabitate. They think there's nothing wrong with it. And God says, 
the marriage bed is to be kept in honor above all. And yet, because it's comfortable, because it does what we want it to do, we choose to worship that instead of God. What things are we tempted by? What things do we act out? You see, the, the church in Pergamum is being tempted to make their lives more comfortable by partaking in these community sacrifices. They're looking to make their lives more comfortable by participating in what the community is selling. And we have similar temptations. It's not direct sacrifice. No lambs or bulls are being killed. Our market does not uh, suffice under the sacrifices to any gods. Thanks the Lord. But we still are tempted to be an idolatrous people to worship everything and anything other than God. And so we must guard our hearts as faithful witnesses of Christ. For the faithful worship God alone. Revelation 2.15. So also you have some who teach, who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Second time, only two times in Scripture they come up. Uh, first uh, sermon, I, I mentioned them very briefly. Second sermon, uh, third, well, third sermon, here they are again, the Nicolaitans. What's with these Nicolaitans? Okay, well, it's kind of complicated, so just bear with me. So in the study of words, that is etymology. That word means the study of words, Okay. The etymology of the Nicolaitans and Balaam have related meanings. Okay? They don't mean exactly the same thing, but they mean somewhat the same thing. Nicolaitans means he who overcomes the people. Balaam means he who consumes the people. So they're interrelated. So perhaps... The Nicolaitans are not uh, a specific group of people at all, or I mean, in like a special group of people, but they are uh, the same as these people who are holding the teaching of Balaam. So perhaps Jesus is saying it in two different ways for emphasis. Like he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Like, why didn't you, why did you say it twice? Right? He's saying it twice because he wants you to know that this is an error that we are all prone to fall into. And we must worship God alone. We all want to create idols in our own hearts. And there are so many things, and sometimes even good things, that compete for our affections from God. But we must worship God alone. So the solution, Revelation 2.16. Therefore, repent. Thank God for forgiveness. Thank God for repentance. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them, the, those who 
practice the teachings of Balaam, these people in that church at Pergamum, I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. So what do we got? We got Jesus' solution, and Jesus' solution is repent. Knock it off. Stop it. If you are in a place where you are loving something more than God, and that means you are sinning, <laughs> stop, repent, quit, change your circumstances. If you need help changing your circumstances, please come talk to me. I'll try to help you. If you need a place to stay, I'll, I'll figure it out. Repent. Torn from your sin. That's the solution. Now, if you continue to walk in idolatry and, and not worship God alone, then you're going to have some problems. But if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This confession of of sin for believers is I'm wrong, you're right. I'm aligning myself with you. It's not owning God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness is there for everybody. It's stepping into God's reality. That's what confession is. I'm wrong, you're right. I'm stepping back into your love and to your forgiveness, which you already have right there for me. So repent. Confess your sin and find the grace that is sufficient for And if not, Jesus' judgment upon that Christian who refuses to worship God or upon that person who refuses to worship God alone, he says, he will make war with the sword of his mouth. He will make war with the sword of his mouth. Meaning, you're not even a believer. If you stubbornly just choose to go down that road, you've been deceived. And you don't know Jesus. Now, you may do it for a season, and I can't judge for how long that season is. Because repentance is always there. But the day is coming when... There will be a war by the sword of his mouth. And what day is that? That is the final day. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Serious. Serious stuff. The faithful worship God alone. The faithful worship God alone. Revelation 2.17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the hidden manna, and I will give the white stone with a new name, written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Church, hear 
Jesus' words spoken by the Spirit. Hear them, receive them, act on them. Know, church, that we are more than conquerors in Jesus and God's love and Jesus' love. This is how we conquer. It's not in our bootstraps. It's not in our own strength. It's in the work of Christ. In all these things, tribulations, trials, sickness, health, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's God's work in us. So what is the hidden manna? What is the white stone? What is What name is written on the stone? Well, come Wednesday night to find out about these rewards of Jesus that he gives. I don't have time to go through them tonight. I'm already right at 7.30. So, or 6.30. I can't even read time tonight. So, come. Let us worship God alone. Father God, we do worship you. We bring our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. We choose to do everything for your glory. Everything, all work, all play, everything to glorify you. And if it doesn't glorify you, then may we cease and desist and worship you alone. 